everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. Welcome back, everybody. I think we're just going to get into the case today. Sounds good. So today's case is one that I have been wanting to cover for a while um, and just haven't yet. So this is the story of the murder in Hotel Room 1046, a.k.a. the murder of Roland T. Owen, a.k.a. the murder of Artemis Ogletree. I do not know this at all. When you told me about... I think I said, is that from a movie or something? Or or did, did someone, like, you know, kill themselves in that room yeah. or something like that? But, yeah, I have no idea what this case is about at all. All right. So the reason that this case has so many names is because the victim, Artemis Ogletree, was identified at first as the name that he gave at the hotel, Roland T. Owen. But okay. nobody could identify who that man was after he was killed for over a year. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I'll be referring to him as Roland T. Owen throughout the story until he was identified so that you guys can like get an idea of, you know, what was going on in the case. Okay. But just know that the victim is named Artemis Ogletree. Okay. And I'm pretty sure it's Ogletree. I looked it up. That's what I found. Somebody can please correct me if I'm wrong. It might be Ogletree. That's what I thought at first. But then when I looked it up, I found Ogletree. So that's what I'm going with. Okay. <laughs> at 1.20 p.m. on January 2nd, 1935, a man checked into the President Hotel in downtown Kansas City, Missouri. The only belongings that he had with him were a comb and a toothbrush. He didn't have any luggage or anything else. Okay, that's kind of strange. Yeah. He checked into the hotel using the name Roland T. Owen, and he requested an interior room on a high floor. So he didn't want a room with, like, a window out to the street. He wanted one with a window to, like, the courtyard of the hotel. Okay. He also gave a Los Angeles address for his address. Okay. He paid for one night, and he was assigned to room 1046 on the 10th floor. And after he checked in and was brought up to his room, the hotel staff only saw him intermittently throughout his stay. They didn't get involved much in their guests. This hotel was often known for businessmen and others passing through, just kind of staying there and oftentimes having women coming up to their room. So they kind of just didn't get involved with guests and they only saw him a handful of times. But they remembered that when he checked in, he was well-dressed, wearing a dark overcoat. They believed that he was in his early 20s, noting that he had a visible scar on his temple 
and also that he had cauliflower ear, making them think that he was a boxer or professional wrestler. So cauliflower ear, if you don't know, is a condition that often happens to boxers or wrestlers, people that do that kind of thing a lot. So they thought, oh, maybe he's a boxer or a wrestler. That makes sense. I mean, (laughs) yeah. The bellhop, whose name was Randolph Probst, accompanied the man to his room, and on the way, the man complained to Probst about the outrageous prices of a neighboring hotel, so he said that he had stayed at the hotel next door called the Muhlebach Hotel, and he said that $5, which is $100 today, was too high for a nightly rate. Fair enough, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, you know. So once in the room and the bellhop was still there, the man removed a comb and toothbrush from his coat pocket. So that's how they knew that he had these things and no other luggage. And he put the items above the sink in the bathroom. And then he left the room with Probst. So Probst locked the door to the room and then gave Roland T. Owen the key. They walked back down and the man left the hotel. Not long after this, one of the hotel maids, Mary Soptic, began her afternoon shift for the day. She went into room 1046 and was surprised to find Roland T. Owen there because the night before, a woman had occupied the room and she just didn't expect a new guest to be there. So she apologized for entering, but he told her, you can go ahead and clean the room. Mary noted that Owen had the shades drawn and had only one dim lamp lighting the room, so it was really dark in there. After she had been cleaning for a few minutes, Owen put on his overcoat, brushed his hair, and left the room. And he asked her to leave the door unlocked as he was expecting some friends in a few minutes. At 4 p.m., not too long after this, Mary returned to the room with fresh towels, and the room was still unlocked. And when she went inside, she saw Owen lying on the bed fully dressed. The room was still dark, and with the light from the hallway, she could read a note on his bedside table that read, Dawn, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Okay, that's kind of interesting considering he's laying on the bed. Yeah, it just keeps getting weirder. Okay. (laughs) At around 10.30 the next morning, which is now January 3rd, Mary returned to room 1046, and the door was locked, and this could only be done from the outside, so she figured that he wouldn't be there. So she used her key to enter the room, and when she did, Owen was sitting inside. Again, he was sitting in the dark, as he was the previous afternoon, and she kind of just began cleaning. At one point, while she was cleaning, the phone rang and Owen answered, and he said to the person on the other line, No, Dawn, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. No, I am not hungry. Okay. Mary then said that while he was still holding the phone, Owen started asking her about her job, wanting to know if she was responsible for cleaning the entire floor and if the President Hotel was a residential hotel. He also repeated his complaints about the other hotel's high rates to her, and Mary kind of just, you know, was cordial, and she finished cleaning and left, and when she left, she took the towels with her to wash. At 4 p.m., Mary returned with fresh towels, but this time, she could hear two men talking inside the room, so instead of entering, she knocked. One of the men asked who it was. And she described this man's voice as being loud and deep, and she did not think that it was Owen's. She thought this was a different man. Okay. 
She told the man that she had brought fresh towels, and the man said, we don't need any. But as I just said, she knew there were no towels in the room because she had taken them earlier. But either way, she didn't want to get involved, and she left. I don't blame her. <laughs> yeah. That evening, a woman named Jean Owen, no relation to Roland T. Owen, checked into the President Hotel. She had been shopping in Kansas City and, feeling sick, had decided not to return home to a neighboring city called Lee's Summit, where she lived. Jean was assigned to room 1048, so right next door to Roland's room. And around at around 9.20 p.m. that night, her boyfriend came to visit her, staying with her for about two hours in their hotel room. And she later told police that after that, after her boyfriend left, she heard men and women talking loudly using profanities and just being very noisy all over the 10th floor. Jean wasn't the only person who noted the activity happening that night at the hotel. An elevator operator named Charles Blotcher, who started his shift at midnight, later reported that the hotel was pretty busy that night until 1.30 a.m. And he said that after that, most of the hotel quieted down except for a loud party in room 1055. He also recalled one visitor that night in particular a woman that he believed to be a sex worker. So Charles reported that she came in first for the first time that night sometime during the first three hours of his shift, so between midnight and like 3 a.m. He said that she was headed to room 1026, but five minutes later, Charles was called back up to the 10th floor, you know, in the elevator, and she told him that she was confused because the man that she was meeting in that room wasn't present, even though he always was when she'd met him before. Okay. But she remained on the 10th floor, and then half an hour later, she left. And then an hour after that, Charles took her and a different man back up to the 9th floor where she remained until 4.15 a.m. So that was the activity that happened in the hotel that night. Nothing too out of the ordinary, you know a loud party, sex workers. That was kind of what happened at the hotel. Yeah, it sounds like that was the norm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At 7 a.m. the next day, so we're now at January 4th, switchboard operator Della Ferguson was preparing to make a requested wake-up call to room 1046, but she noticed that the phone in that room was off the hook, so she couldn't make the wake-up call. Randolph Probst, that same bellhop who had helped Roland Owen to his room two days earlier was the one to pick up the request to go get that phone back on the hook so when he went up to room 1046 it was locked and again it could only be locked from the outside and there was a sign that said do not disturb hanging from the doorknob after several loud knocks a voice from inside told him to enter but he couldn't because it was locked and he didn't have a key after another knock the same voice told him to turn the lights on but again he still couldn't enter, so he finally just yelled through the door to hang up the phone and left. And he couldn't identify whether or not that voice was Roland T. Owen. Okay. About an hour later, around 8.30 a.m., the phone was still off the hook, so it never got put back on. Another bellboy, Harold Pike, was sent to the 10th floor, where he once again found the Do Not Disturb sign on the door and the door still being locked. But Harold had a key, so he entered the room, and when he went in, he found the room dark, with Owen lying on the bed naked, seemingly drunk. Light coming in from the hallway showed him some dark spots on the bedding, but he didn't think much of it. He placed the phone on the hook and left. He was like, I don't want to get involved in this. I'm just going to put the phone back and leave. 
Another two hours later at 10.30 a.m., the phone in room 1046 was once again off of the hook. So probes went back up to figure out what was going on. The door was still locked with the do not disturb sign, but this time Probst had a key, so he let himself in, and he found Roland T. Owen on his knees and elbows just two feet away from the door. His head was bloodied, and when he turned the lights in the room on, he noticed blood on the walls and the bed. Okay. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Probst immediately went downstairs for help, and when he returned with an assistant manager, they could not... They could only open the door six inches. So Owen had fallen forward, basically, and they couldn't open the door all the way. Oh, no. Eventually, he got up and the two were able to enter the room, and Owen went to sit on the edge of the bathtub. So obviously, they called the police and a doctor, and eventually, Dr. Harold Flanders of Kansas City General Hospital arrived. He found cords that had been wrapped around Owen's neck, wrists, and ankles, So he cut those free, and he determined that Owen had been stabbed multiple times in the chest just above his heart. He also had a punctured lung and had received several blows to the head that left the right side of his skull fractured. So Dr. Flanders asked Owen who had done this to him, and he responded, nobody. The doctor then asked what caused these injuries, and Owen said that he had fallen and hit his head on the bathtub. He then asked if he was trying to kill himself, to which he responded, no. After that, Owen lost consciousness and was taken to the hospital, so they weren't able to ask him anything else. By the time they arrived at the hospital, he was completely comatose, and shortly after midnight on January 5th, 1935, Roland T. Owen was pronounced dead. That's so sad. Like, what oh, What about the stab wounds? Like, what? Yeah. He, and he never said he just didn't where they came remember from. it. Yeah. Well, weird. and when asked who did this, he said nobody. But also yeah. remember, he had a fractured skull, so yeah, he could have had some brain damage at that point. Yeah. So after this, an investigation into his death began. Doctor Flanders not only um, uh, conducted the autopsy and you know determined that his wounds were the cause of his death, but he also went back to the hotel room and examined the blood stains which at this point they realized were all over the walls of the main room and the bathroom, even stretching up to the ceilings. Wow. Because of the way that the blood stains were dried by that point, he estimated that the wounds had been inflicted between 4 and 5 a.m. on January 4th. So this was well before the bellhop first went into Owen's room to put the phone back on the hook and... If you remember, that was the time that the bellhop reported seeing Owen on the bed, naked and seemingly drunk. But he kind of was like, I'm not going to look there. I'm just going to put the phone on the hook and leave. And then by the time the other bellhop went back up, he saw what was going on. Right. So the Kansas City Police Department immediately interviewed Jean Owen, the woman who had stayed at the hotel after not feeling well after shopping. They thought that she might be related because they had the same last name, so they pretty quickly detained her and questioned her about what she had seen and heard the night before. Her boyfriend ended up coming to the police station, and he was able to corroborate her account of, you know, I wasn't feeling well, I came back and just, like, stayed in the hotel, so she was released. Detectives examined Hotel Room 1046 for any clues as to who could have done this. 
They found no clothes or other belongings in the room, and they also found the soap, shampoo, and towels that the room had had when he checked in missing. There was no knife or other murder weapon found in the room, so that ruled out any thought that his death could have been a suicide. The other evidence they found in the room was one of the room's glasses in the sink, partially broken and missing a piece. They found a hairpin, a safety pin, an unsmoked cigarette, and a full bottle of diluted sulfuric acid. There were also four small fingerprints on the room's phone that could not be matched to Owen or any of the other hotel employees, and detectives believe that they were women's prints, but they couldn't, like find a match because you know at that point the systems where you can put fingerprints in and look at a whole bunch of people didn't exist and you could only compare it to a suspect if you have one and they didn't have any suspects so the fingerprints went nowhere and like it could be from someone who previously stayed at the exactly hotel room so that's kind of like "Eh." (laughs) yeah and none of the other physical evidence led anywhere So with no real leads, the police turned to the public for help. Detective Johnson confirmed to the press that this was a homicide when he reported, quote, there is no doubt that someone else is mixed up in this. And it pretty quickly became apparent that Roland T. Owen was an alias. The KCPD contacted the LAPD to notify next of kin, but the LAPD couldn't find any record of anyone under that name living in Los Angeles at the time. They also sent the man's fingerprints to the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, which would later become the FBI, to see if they could find a match, but nothing was found. On January 6th, newspapers began reporting that the man that had died was not Roland T. Owen, but that his identity was unknown. Members of the public started going to the local funeral home where he had been laid out to try to identify him. There were several different people along the way who said that they could identify him, but nothing ever panned out. A man named Robert Lane went to the police not long after this to tell them that he had had an encounter that he believed had been with the man this unidentified man from the day before. So Lane said that at around 11 p.m. on January 3rd, he was driving on 13th Street near Lydia Avenue in Kansas City when he saw a man dressed in an undershirt, pants, and shoes run into his path and basically flag him down. So Lane slowed down, and then the man was like, oh, I'm so sorry, I thought you were a taxi, and then asked if Lane could bring him to somewhere where he could get a taxi, and Lane agreed. While he was driving the man, he saw in the car mirror that the man had a deep scratch on his arm and that he was kind of cupping it, possibly to catch blood from a severe wound. So Lane just kept driving and dropped the man off at the intersection of 12th Street and Troost Avenue. He watched the man get into a taxi, and then he drove away. So when Lane went to see the man's, this man's body to try to identify him, he, was, he saw the same scratch on his arm, or what he believed to be the same scratch. So he went to the police to tell them about this encounter he had, but Detective Johnson actually wasn't so sure that the man that Lane had encountered was their victim. This was partially due to the fact that none of the hotel staff had seen him leave or return during the night of January 3rd to 4th. The story started spreading across the United States, so more and more leads to the man's identity came in, but nothing that was sent to the KCPD matched the victim. 
There were no real leads in the investigation, and it kind of just went nowhere. The Muehlbach Hotel, which was the hotel that, quote-unquote, Owen had told the president hotel employees that he had stayed at the night before, reported that the man that checked in that stayed at that hotel with a Los Angeles address had checked in under the name Eugene K. Scott. So this was another name, and this was definitely the same man because, again, Los Angeles address, and he requested an interior room. Okay. But again, no Eugene K. Scott was found in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, after this, there were two more homicides in the city that ended up keeping detectives busy, and while they followed up on any leads that they got in the case, it went cold. In March, the funeral home announced that they would be burying the man in the city's potter's field. But the day it was announced, the funeral home received a call from a man who asked that the funeral be delayed so that he could send them money for a grave and service at Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City, Kansas. So the caller said that he wanted the victim to be buried near his sister. So the funeral home director was like, excuse me, we don't have an identity for this man. How do you know who his sister is? And he said, you know, I'm going to have to go tell police about this. And the caller said, that doesn't bother me. That's fine. Okay. According to the caller, this man had been killed because he was having an affair with one woman while being engaged to another. So the caller claimed that these two women had arranged the encounter with the man at the President Hotel to basically exact revenge. Oh, my goodness. Wow. (laughs) So he told the funeral home director, quote, cheaters usually get what's coming to them. And then he hung up. All right. I mean, yeah, that's true, but yeah. <laughs> death? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so the funeral home agree or they delayed the service because they were like, well, we're getting money, so we'll we'll wait. Yeah. And on March 23rd, the funeral home received an envelope with $25 in it, which is equal to $500 today. Two additional envelopes of $5 each were also sent to a local florist requesting an arrangement of 13 roses for the funeral. And apparently the floral shop had received a similar phone call and with the payment sent to them was a card that read, Love Forever, Louise. Again, we have no clue who this caller is. We have no (laughs) clue who this Louise is. And the caller never said the man's name. And 13 Roses is very specific. Yes. Very I would be specific. like, what? Why? I'd, I'd be asking so many questions if I was on the other side of that phone. They probably did and just didn't get answers. Yeah. So after this, the funeral was held a few days later, but the only attendees were detectives working the case. And they actually had detectives kind of dress as just people visiting the cemetery for a few days after to see if anybody would visit his grave, but nobody did. Okay. A few days later, a woman called the Kansas City Journal-Post's newsroom to inform them that their earlier story about the man being buried in the potter's yard was wrong and that he had been given a formal funeral. She said, the funeral home and the flower shop can verify this, And when she was asked to identify herself, she said, never mind, I don't know what I'm talking about. And then when they pushed further, she said, he got into a jam. And then she hung up. Seems like a lot of people know what's going on with this guy, but no one can get to the bottom of it. Exactly. 
So there were kind of these leads that detectives were trying to chase down. But again, it was 1935, so it's not like they could look like trace a phone call or anything and they couldn't identify this man images continued to circulate nationwide in the hopes of identifying him but nothing solid came in about a year after this man's murder a woman named ruby ogletree was shown a copy of the american weekly by her friend they lived in birmingham alabama and her friend thought that the unidentified man in the paper looked a lot like her son, Artemis. Artemis had not been seen by his family since he left to hitchhike to California in 1934 at the age of 19 years old, but he had apparently kept up correspondence with them. So Ruby agreed that, yeah, they look alike, so she contacted the KCPD, and she was able to provide information about her son that matched the man. So she said that her son had a scar on his head near his temple, and the unidentified man also had a scar on his head near his temple. Mm -hmm. So the KCPD finally knew that this was the unidentified man. So this was great. They finally knew that this man was Artemis Ogletree. However, Ruby claimed that she had received several letters from her son after he had been killed. What? So the first was from early 1935, after his death. It was postmarked from Chicago. And when she got it, it actually aroused suspicion in Ruby's mind because, first of all, it was typed, and Artemis apparently did not know how to type. Then she also said that it was written in a highly colloquial style, and that was not consistent with his previous letters or, you know, how she knew him to, to speak. Right. And then in May 1935, another letter from quote-unquote Artemis arrived to Ruby saying that he was going to Europe. After that, Ruby received a letter saying that his ship was sailing that day. And both of those came from New York. Mm. In August 1935, Ruby received a phone call from a man in Memphis, Tennessee, saying that Artemis had saved his life on a flight but that Artemis himself could not call her because he was now living in Cairo, Egypt. So this caller said that Artemis had married a wealthy woman and was doing well. But he said that Artemis was unable to write to her because he had lost one of his thumbs in this fight where he saved the caller. So Ruby talked to this man for half an hour and recalled that while he spoke wildly and irrationally, he seemed to have firsthand knowledge of Artemis. So police, or Ruby gave police the name that this caller had identified himself as, but that name has never been made public and it seems like it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Police looked into potentially if a man named Artemis lived in Egypt, but they couldn't find anything. They also looked into Artemis's stay at another Kansas City hotel called the St. Regis, where he had stayed with another man. That man couldn't be identified, but they thought that this could potentially be Don. Because if you recall, there had been evidence that the man at the President Hotel was with a man named Don. There was the note in his room that Mary saw, and then he was heard by Mary on the phone saying, No, Don, I'm not hungry. It couldn't be determined if the man who he stayed with at the St. Regis was this Don person, but they thought that that could be a possibility. 
1937, a man in New York named Joseph Martin was arrested on a murder charge. He had killed a man that he shared a hotel room with and had put the body in a trunk to be shipped to Memphis. Among the aliases that he was found to have used was Donald Kelso. So maybe Don. Okay, yeah. I mean, that that adds up. That makes sense. Yep. According to a story in The New Yorker, the KCPD also were able to match samples of Joseph Martin's handwriting to the handwriting in the letters that Ruby received after Artemis's death, but the KCPD has never said anything about that. They've also never charged him with Artemis's murder, and they've basically never reported that, so it's unclear where The New Yorker got this information from and if it's true. Okay. And Artemis Ogletree's murder has remained unsolved to this day. Wow. There are, of course, several theories in the case, including that he was possibly killed because of his involvement with a woman that he was not engaged to. Mm-hmm. And that potentially that sex worker that came in that night could have been involved, but I don't think that she was involved. And I think that even if this was a possibility that that was what you know, caused his murder, I feel like we're never going to know because there was no evidence and they, you know, didn't, weren't able to see anybody come in. Right. There is also a theory that this killer, Joseph Martin, was involved because of the use of of Donald Kelso. Right. And that potentially he had tried to kill Artemis for you know, no reason because he was a killer, but then maybe something went wrong and he fled before he could do the whole, you know, ship in a trunk to a different city thing. Yeah. Then there's also a theory that a completely different man named Don was with him and killed him for some personal reasons. But to this day, it remains unsolved. And honestly, it's unlikely that it ever will be. And we still don't know why Artemis Ogletree used fake names at these hotels either. It sounds to me like he was a spy. I'm just going to say that. (laughs) He's got all these aliases. People are seeing him and, you know, he's in New York. He's in Egypt. He's in, which obviously none of that has been proven, but it just sounds kind of like a spy movie or something. Yeah, you never know. (laughs) Um, And it definitely to me seems like Somebody had come and tried to kill him, mm-hmm. and then it didn't work, or they thought that he was dead and he wasn't, and that's why the phone kept getting off the hook, because he was probably trying to make a call but couldn't, and that's why the first bellhop saw him just laying on the bed. Like It definitely seems like it was a, a, a botched murder, basically, yeah. but there are just no leads, even though there's these theories We just have zero clue. Like, I definitely think that the most possible one is that Joseph Martin was involved. Yeah. But that's literally just because none of the other theories have anything that we can identify at all. So it is so bizarre and so weird. And it clearly somebody was trying to cover it up because they were sending letters to Ruby and making a call to Ruby and all this stuff. To, like, make her think that her son was still alive. So it's just so bizarre. And why? Like, why? I mean, 
Yeah, I guess as, you know, as a mother, if your son hadn't reached out to you in several, you know, in several months, yeah. you would, you would grow suspicious, but it's also what the late thirties yeah, and no one, you know, there's not a lot of means of communication out there. So to go to that extent to try to prove that he's still alive is kind of weird to me in a way. Yeah. And that's kind of why I don't think it's Joseph Martin, because how would he have known about ruby unless joseph martin somehow knew artemis and there was like more of a motive than just he wanted to kill somebody he like purposefully wanted to kill artemis Mm -hmm. because they would have had to know like to send letters to ruby that artemis had been communicating with her and that it's just so bizarre and clearly whoever was doing this was trying to get her to like not worry you know, saying, right. oh, he's in Egypt, he married a wealthy woman, he's doing great, but he can't write to you for this reason, like, <laughs> he has no thumb. you're all fine. Yeah, yeah like, yeah. it is just so bizarre. Yeah, it is. That's Because that's a lot of effort for someone to make for somebody who's just a, seemingly a regular old guy from Alabama, right? Yeah, yep, exactly. But we'll never know. And poor Artemis will never get justice, probably. I feel so bad for his mom and his family and him. I mean, at least he finally was identified. But it's just so heartbreaking and so freaking bizarre. Yeah, I mean, it is. That's crazy details to that one. Yeah, so I will post photos of like the newspapers and stuff because there's a lot of um, record of all of that. So be sure to check that out on our Instagram and Facebook. But that's all I have for you guys today. I'd love to hear your theories, so let us know because this is one that I feel like so many people can have different theories and they could all be right. Right. So yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you next time with a brand new episode. And until then, keep it human. Bye.